Hello and welcome to the Digital Works podcast, the podcast about digital stuff in the cultural sector. My name's Ash and today's episode is episode 7 of Bytes, which is our regular short form series where we look at three interesting things from our most recent Digital Works newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter on our website, which you can find at thedigital.works. And joining me today, and for all episodes in this series, is the person who puts the newsletter together, my colleague Katie. Today we'll be discussing things from the newsletter which went out on Monday the 26th of February 2024, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Hi Katie. Hello. The three things that we're going to look at today are the launch of OpenAI's new text-to-video product, which they're calling Sora. We'll also look at the apparent meltdown that ChatGPT had last week, and we'll examine the BBC's AI principles that they've published. We also want to talk about YouTube CEO Neil Moen's predictions for 2024. And last but not least, we will look at an article in Engadget about the browser company's new product, the article is titled, Who Makes Money When AI Reads the Internet for Us? Now, I realize that's more than three things, but broadly, it's AI news, YouTube predictions, and considerations about how the web is monetized. So first up, we are going to look at three AI things at the same time because they feel linked to each other. So let's start with the launch of Sora, which is OpenAI's latest product. And it allows you to create, as they say, realistic and imaginative scenes from text instructions. But in the newsletter, you included a quote from Gary Marcus, which said, the system is trying to approximate the world, but it just isn't very good at that job. It uses arrangements of pixels to predict other arrangements of pixels, but it does not try to build an internal model of physics, and it does not try to build an internal model of cultural artifacts either. Now, I've also read articles that have highlighted the potentially terrifying effects, particularly around disinformation, that this new tool could create, particularly with really important elections upcoming this year. So what's your perspective on this, the latest leap forward with AI-generated functionality? Uh, I mean, well, straight off the bat, it's an incredible development, isn't it? To be able to create fully rendered video from a sentence, two sentences, is astonishing. Of course, as Gary Marcus was pointing out, it's not perfect at all. A bit like images that are created using generative AI, there's always a slight weirdness with them at the moment. But of course, that's going to develop and it's going to get better so quickly. I think there's a few different strands to this, isn't there? There is the sort of the question of how people might use it in negative ways, as you're saying, whether that's disinformation, etc. There is clearly a real issue with that. I saw this TikTok yesterday, which is a young woman, and she's essentially saying, I created an AI video of myself, and you think it's going to be a stitch, so you think it's going to stitch into the AI, but obviously the big da-da is that actually the video is AI. So she used a generative AI audio tool and video tool, stitched it together, 
And you would literally not know that it wasn't her when you look at other videos on her account. It's astonishing. So there's that. <laughs> I mean, who knows what's going to happen? It's going to be interesting, particularly with the election. On the other side of things, though, from a creative perspective, I think it will be interesting to see what and how organisations do with this technology for things like creating, you know, that kind of ephemeral throwaway content for social media, short video, etc. So it's going to have huge ramifications for sure, both for good and not so good. I mean, I suppose on the subject of Gary Marcus's point that these tools are fallible, I want to quickly look at the fact that ChatGPT <laughs> had a bit of a meltdown last week and was essentially talking gibberish. Katie linked to some really lovely examples in the newsletter. And also in the newsletter, you highlighted that Air Canada is paying the price for its customer service AI chatbot giving a user incorrect information. And just this week in the news in the UK, there was a new story about a Willy Wonka experience that was advertised using all AI-generated assets and was, to put it mildly, a bit of a disaster. <laughs> and I think that whilst absolutely Sora is an amazing step forward, and once these tools are released, the improvement and the speed of improvement is equally astonishing, we also need to be mindful that they are fallible, and what, do they, what does this little cluster of stories maybe tell us about the reliability of these types of tools at this stage in their development? I mean, it's a salutary reminder that they are not pulling factual information from a database, that they are creating text, images, whatever, based on predictions. I shouldn't laugh, really, probably, because there are some, I guess, you know, serious consequences of these sorts of tools going haywire as the... Um, Canada Air example showed so so that for those who haven't read it basically yeah their AI driven chatbot effectively told a customer that they were eligible for a refund when they in fact weren't and the courts upheld that because the customer basically fought it when Canada Air said no you're not sorry the chatbot's gone crazy so that that's that's a kind of really serious issue for a company it has a financial impact but the article about the fact that ChatGPT started speaking gibberish just made me laugh because there's a sort of element of the real absurd about it where it just started saying completely bizarre things. And I mean, you know, objectively, that's quite funny. But again, it's, it's just a salutary reminder that it's not facts. It is not facts. So if you're using these tools to help you with writing reports or doing admin tasks to do with work just be aware that you know you can't necessarily rely on it to be truthful yeah it's uh it is quite funny though because i just wonder if you know it was having an off day anyway they've open ai fixed it quite quickly so you know i mean yeah it, it was it was surreal it was like it was drunk which was quite <laughs> enjoyable but, you know, also in the newsletter, you link to an article which highlights a number of, you know, really practical ways in which AI could be embedded into people's workflows, you know, today. But the last thing I want to talk about in this section is related to that, because it feels like, based on everything we've just talked about, if you are going to be embracing AI tools, AI working, there needs to be some scaffolds around that to, you know, to, to sort of de-risk a lot of the unreliability that we've just talked about. And you shared, I think, a really nice example of the BBC's AI principles, 
which I'll just read them out, the sort of headlines. They say, we will act in the best interests of the public. We will prioritize talent and creativity. We will be open and transparent. And this covers things like making it clear that there will be human oversight, that they will consider and respect privacy and intellectual property rights, and that any AI work has to adhere to the BBC's editorial guidelines and values. And would you say that cultural organisations should be thinking about something similar, should be thinking about drawing up their own equivalents Mm. of guiding principles, at least, if, if they don't feel they've got enough information or expertise to draw up full policies? Are principles at this stage useful? Yes, 100%, I would say yes. A few issues back, we shared some examples of actual guidelines that organisations had written. So there was one from the civil service. There was another sample AI policy that had actually been written by a software company. And as you say, it may be that cultural organisations are not quite at the stage where they feel ready to write those types of policies. I will predict right here and now that within 12 months, there will be some kind of issue that will come out from a cultural organization because of some use of AI that has had a negative consequence, either because of using it for creative purposes and some kind of ethical issue or, you know, perhaps, you know, factual stuff or some other thing. I I just think it's inevitable, really. And the problem is that a lot of organisations, they're not even clear what their staff may or may not be using. We did some work recently with a a medium-sized cultural organisation to do a, it was actually a, a kind of piece of skills, digital capacity building work. But as part of that, we ran a big survey. And one of the things we asked staff is, you know, what tools are you currently using when it comes to AI? And there was a huge range of them. And, you know, there's no guardrails there about what is being done with the stuff that's being generated, etc. So yeah, I think at the very least, find out what your staff are using now and then come up with just some basic principles and just keep it on the table in terms of a more in-depth policy, for sure. Our second thing is the open letter that YouTube CEO Neil Moen published a couple of weeks ago, which outlined four big bets for 2024. Now, all four of them are quite YouTube or content-centric, as you might expect, but I'll go through them quickly. So number one is AI will empower human creativity. Number two is creators should be recognized as the next generation studios. And number three is YouTube's next frontier is the living room and subscriptions. And number four is protecting the creator economy is foundational. Now, the first two there are maybe sort of zeitgeist and perhaps fairly trite, but three and four strike me as interesting. What's your sense of what this might tell us about YouTube's focus and priorities or perhaps the wider content context that YouTube invariably informs? Yeah, it is really interesting. As you say, it's kind of, on the one hand, it's quite easy to dismiss these as sort of, well, a bit so what? But I think the point about YouTube, they describe it as the next frontier is the living room and subscriptions. There's a interesting point in here, and I think it's largely a generational one, 
that those of us who are old enough <laughs> to remember pre-YouTube would absolutely have a distinction between things that you watch on the television and even streaming services like Netflix, etc. And YouTube, which originally was sort of a social media platform and then it was a content platform and now it's all those things. And he's essentially saying YouTube has become, is becoming no different to Netflix. And certainly generationally, if you speak to Gen Z, they will absolutely have that view that there's no difference. They watch things interchangeably. It's all content. There's something in all of this, which is a, a discussion, a longer discussion for a different day about how originally YouTube was about, you know, democratizing who has a voice and who gets to reach audiences. And that's still the case. But ironically, perhaps as YouTube becomes more of a, we are a content provider, people watch our content. Actually, those bigger content creators will rise to the top and perhaps we sort of then end up in a situation where you have fewer but bigger content providers rather than that sort of notion of niche content. But I think that that needs unpicking a bit more. And his other point about protecting the creator economy, which is essentially, you know, comes back to the sort of AI issue as well as, you know, online safeguarding for kids. The fact that they're saying in the context of the sort of election year that they're going to be introducing labels that will sort of flag this is AI generated content is particularly interesting when viewed against the lens of X and Elon Musk and the fact that it's just fair game on there. Who knows what X is going to be like as we get nearer the US elections in terms of content. I personally find it quite what's the word? I find it fairly comforting that YouTube are at least trying to push back against some of the disinformation, but it's going to be hard work for sure. Yeah, but I think it is, as you say, encouraging that a CEO is saying things like that rather than a CEO like Elon Musk who says different things. <laughs> And our final thing is the article in Engadget about Arc Search, which is titled, Who Makes Money When AI Reads the Internet for Us? And you said in the newsletter, while all of this is great from a user experience point of view, it has huge ramifications for the future of the internet. So what is Arc Search? Who is making money? Why does it have huge ramifications for the future of the internet? So Arc Search is an iPhone app. There is also a desktop browser version. And essentially within it, it has a feature called Browse for Me. And so if you are, you know, if you want to find something that you would traditionally use, like let's say Google Search, what it does is it uses AI to read and summarize web pages into a kind of formatted page. And that means, in theory, you don't then need to visit those pages as a user. And of course, that means that you're not seeing the ads or you're not getting the cookies and the trackers. And so while that is seen as being a really positive thing for users, and this particular product has had huge amounts of positive press online, lots of people saying it's fantastic from a user experience perspective, of course, what that means is that 
we could end up in a situation where you know there is a huge reduction in the number of sites being visited and therefore you know current kind of content creators online are not able to pay for that if they're using an ad supported model and so then we kind of are going down a corridor of in theory less and less choice online yeah it's a very tricky thing to unpick really because i can absolutely see both sides of the argument it is a massive shift and i've commissioned a bunch of essays to accompany the digital works conference one of which is from story things matt Locke, and he sort of writes about this very issue he describes it as sort of the third age of the internet and that the search and social driven dynamics of the past 20 years are being completely restructured by these ai driven technologies and actually search is going to play a different role social is going to play a different role in, in when i say a different role i mean in content discovery and i think it's going to be really interesting for cultural organizations specifically to then think about the purpose of their institutional website to think about the role in which these types of ai driven services sit in the broader sort of mix of channels that they're active on because i think what is undeniable is that this is a sea change mm. and i think it's about working out your place in all of that or radically rethinking your digital activity and sort of removing yourself from it i was reading about a tech news platform and they put everything behind a subscriber wall now and you can sign up for a free account you don't have to pay for access to all of their content but you do have to create an account and that is because they're trying to build direct relationships with their readers and they're trying to push back against mm. ai tools scraping their content mm. and so i do think there are going to be some interesting choices for cultural organizations to make over let's say the next five years because the role of institutional websites the role of social media the role of search is sort of shifting under our feet. Mm, absolutely. And again, there's a lot to unpick in all of that in terms of how it relates to arts and culture organisations. There's probably, there's definitely a blog post just in that. I suppose the positive for cultural organisations is from a search perspective, in, in terms of users who are looking for practical information about venues, in a way you could argue it doesn't really matter if a user doesn't visit your site to find out about parking or access needs as long as the information that they're getting summarized for them is accurate and if a user has to go to your site to buy a ticket also fine there is though i would say questions about your wider content strategy around blog posts and other content that is created by your organization to do different things i i think that definitely needs consideration through the lens of these sorts of developments definitely so that is all three, well, actually like six or seven things <laughs> for this week. I'm not sure if we're going to do another one of these before the conference. So hopefully see some of you at the conference. The issue of ethics and power and all of that, that it's very much come through in everything we've discussed today. And Katie is chairing a panel discussion on considerations around ethics in digital working. Got some really fantastic speakers joining that panel. So hopefully see some of you in Leeds in April. If not, we will be back again soon. See you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bytes. 
You can find all episodes of the podcast on our website at thedigital.works, where you can also find more information about our events and sign up to the newsletter. Our theme tune is Vienna Beat by Blue Dot Sessions. And last but not least, thanks to Mark Cotton for his editing support on this episode. See you again soon. Mm-hmm.